0: Hi, everybody. It's Brent Johnson here from Santiago Capital in San Francisco. And I have the pleasure today of speaking with Lynn Alden of Lynn Alden Investment Strategy. Um, I first came across Lynn, I think, either late last year or earlier this year on Twitter. And she always does a great job of putting out uh, fantastic uh, charts and graphs and really some data-driven uh, arguments uh, when she's trying to make her points. And I, I find her to be uh, extremely smart. I don't necessarily agree with her on everything, but uh, you know it's always interesting to to talk to people that have a different point of view than you. And so I'm really looking forward to talking to you today, Lynn.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, and I've enjoyed our back and forth a lot. And you know it's it's been a, a pretty volatile period for the dollar, and yet it ultimately remains range bound. And it's been yeah. you know kind of fun having a back and forth.
0: Well, I think that's really the interesting thing is if you look at the dollar. I mean, there's a lot of dollar bears out there. There's also, you know, some dollar bulls. And I've been pretty vocal about why I think it's going higher. There's been a number of people who have been vocal about why they think it's going lower. But the reality is, is it's the same place it was five years ago. Uh, I mean, it's it's had some breakdowns along the way and it's had some runs higher along the way. But essentially, it's kind of just flat. But I think, uh, you know, one of the things that that. you've been known for is you've changed your opinion on the dollar a little bit. Um, you're not necessarily a dollar bear or a dollar bull. I think short-term you're a dollar bear. Um, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that's my impression. And we can talk about that a little bit. Um, but what, uh, what, what I, I know that in the past you've been bullish the dollar. And then I know some things happened last year that made you uh, short-term bearish. So I think it'll be fun to kind of talk through some of the things that have happened over the last year. And also maybe some of the things we see coming down the pike over the next few years. And, you know, we'll just kind of, uh, talk about it back and
1: forth. Sure, sounds good. Yeah, my approach uh, over the past couple years is I I published an annual report that focuses on, you know, global equity markets, including their currencies. And uh, for example, in 2018 and early 2019, I ranked the dollar as about neutral and I was more bearish on the euro. Uh, So overall, I had a a more bullish view on the dollar and the yen compared to the euro. And uh, we've seen that play out uh, pretty well. But around the time of the repo spike uh, in September 2019, and then, you know, specifically in early October, I, I kind of shifted more dollar bearish because you went from a, a tightening monetary policy in the U.S. to a, a more loosening monetary policy. And, you know, specifically in rate of change terms, we shifted from having among the tightest, you know, monetary policy in the world. We were rising interest rates. We were, you know, as you described, it sucking up global liquidity, you know, but then we started to get some fractures in that we started to get uh, interest rate cuts uh, and then, you know, it kind of culminated in that repo spike where we had to shift from quantitative tightening to quantitative easing. Uh, so since then, I've been you know, somewhat more structurally bearish on the dollar. Uh, but my position uh, changes a little bit depending on uh, kind of multi-month moves. Like, is the balance sheet increasing? Or are they trying to taper? Things like that that can kind of you know, affect the speed of that.
0: Got it. Coming into this year, the consensus trade by far was, you know, be long EM and be short the dollar. And that lasted for about three weeks, and it completely reversed. And the dollar started running higher. EMs kind of broke down. Equity started to break down, and then we, you know, we March came, and we had the the big, uh, you know, dollar squeeze, for lack of a better word. Um, and that's kind of, uh, you know, we, we have a difference of opinion there. I know of why assets were getting sold, but the the bottom line is they were getting sold. Uh, but since then, you know, the you know the, the the Fed and the other central banks have come in, flushed the market with liquidity. Um, and going back to the rate of change, I think you're right. The Fed has been the Fed has been more aggressive than the other central banks. Although I would argue on a on, on a few different measures, they're still behind the curve. Um, but to your point, that the rate of change has uh, been in the Fed's favor, and as a result, the dollar's pulled back from from that uh, jump it had. So I guess one of the questions I have for you is, um, let's say between now and the election what do you foresee and do you think that the fed stays aggressively uh, on top of the dollar or or do you think we get a rebound here sometime in q3
1: I think we've been oversold a little bit in the near term. So I wouldn't be surprised to see somewhat of a bounce. I think a lot of it might come down to whether or not they can agree on a fiscal bill later this summer, because they are trying to taper some of their monetary support, at least in the Treasury market. But of course, you know, recently we had the announcement of their willingness to buy individual corporate bonds. So that kind of countered that a little bit. So we'll see kind of in rate of change terms how their balance sheet is stacking up to their peers. uh, But you know, in addition to that monetary side, we have some of the fiscal potentially tapering, right? So we could see an end to the extra unemployment benefits. You know, the the initial impact from the the helicopter checks everyone got, the twelve hundred dollar checks, that you know is wearing off at this point. So it'll be interesting to see later this summer if um, you know Congress and the president can pass anything. Because if they don't, we could see another deflationary crunch. We could see another solvency event, or they could pass something and kind of keep the party going through the election. And it'll be interesting to see how that works out. I think that's going to be a big determinant for the dollar.
0: Yeah, you know, I think it's really interesting because it's getting, you know, every, everybody says the Fed is independent and central banks are independent and they should be free from political pressures. And I've always kind of thought that was uh, incorrect, for lack of a better word. Um, it's it's a nice thing to say. In reality, I, I don't think it's the case. But I do think it's an interesting uh, thing right now because after everything that the Fed has done, if we do get another uh, deflationary move and- um, you know, like a move down in asset prices or markets, and the Fed doesn't react, and they quote-unquote let it go down. That could almost be seen as being political to hurt Trump. And so, I think it'll be really interesting to see, you know, how the central banks act uh, over the next three to four months as we kind of run up into the the, the heat of the election. Uh, I have a hard time seeing the Democrats, um, you know, giving Trump what he wants as far as a fiscal stimulus bill in Q3. Uh, But at the same time, they're kind of in a tough spot, too, because if, you know, we get a second wave of COVID or if, you know, we continue to have uh, unemployed workers, you know, that could be painted by, you know, Trump or the Republican side as, uh, you know, playing politics as well. So I I think it's really interesting between now and the election. I would say I won't be shocked at all if we continue to have uh, range bound between now and the election. I don't think that the dollar is going to break down significantly, but I can't rule it out either. Um, but I, I I don't think we're going to have a huge move um, to the upside either, um, probably stay in this kind of this 95 to 95, 99 range that we've had for the last uh, three or four years. Uh, but one thing I want to make sure that we touch on before we go too much further is in March, when we kind of had the big move up in the dollar and the sell off in assets. Um that was, I would say, that was caused because of a dollar squeeze. So, my first question to you is: Do you agree that there was a dollar shortage in 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 March, and that's kind of what led to the sell off in assets?
1: Yeah, I agree, because you know, as you point out, there's there's more than twelve trillion in in U.S. denominated debt overseas, and they primarily get that that the dollars to service that debt through trade. So, when when we had a large trade shutdown, you know, we had a lot of them were cut off access from dollars. Oil prices went down, so they had trouble making dollars. And so we saw a rapid sell-off in uh, risk assets, and then it even spilled over into the Treasury market. So foreigners sold $300 billion worth of Treasuries in March and April to get dollars.
0: So I think we both agree on that. So we both agree that there was a shortage. We both agree that they were selling US-denominated assets in order to get the dollars to meet that dollar squeeze or margin calls, however you want to uh, um, term that. Um, I think where we maybe disagree is who initiated the idea of extending the swap lines so they wouldn't have to um, sell their dollar-based assets. I think you have put out some work stating that, uh, I I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's my impression that you think that um, it was initiated by the Fed so that they would stop selling treasuries in in order for the treasury market to remain functioning correctly, for lack of a better word and not, it was not initiated by the other countries asking for the swap lines. Do you want to tell me how you feel on that, and then we can kind of discuss it back and forth? In my view, uh,
1: I don't focus heavily on who initiated it. It's about who has the incentive to do it. And most of my view, a lot of people focus on that the Fed was kind of um, you know, providing like a good-natured handout or bailout to some of their peers, whereas my view is more two-directional, two right? Because the, the foreign markets didn't want a big liquidity crunch in their markets, and they can't print dollars. But on the same side, the Federal Reserve didn't want to see just m- massive selling of uh, risk assets and then even treasuries. And if you look at their press releases and their meeting minutes, they repeatedly cited uh, the dysfunction in the treasury market. So we had wide bid-ask spreads, we had uh, very poor liquidity, and they cited uh, heavy selling pressures, especially on the longer end of the curve, uh, for a lot of their decisions, including you know the international repo they offered. They said you know instead of selling them uh, on the open market, they can they can loan them to us for dollars. And then they also you know when we had that big uh, brief spike in yields because there were so many uh, foreigners selling and even you know risk parity funds yep. and other domestic sources selling, the Federal Reserve ramped up their QE to 75 billion a day at the peak. To, you know, try to become the primary buyer. And they yeah. actually ended up uh, accumulating more treasuries, the Fed, in March and April than the entire foreign sector had accumulated in the past six years, just in those two months.
0: Yeah, I mean, and I think that kind of goes back to the rate of change thing that you were talking about earlier. And so, interestingly, I actually agree with you. I think it's a two-way thing. Uh, the U.S. definitely does not want interest rate spiking. That That's pretty clear. Um, where I think that— uh, I disagree with a number of people, and I don't know if I disagree with you on this or not, is that despite the fact that Treasuries were, uh, the yields were increasing, it wasn't just Treasuries yields that were increasing. If you look around the world, Treasury prices from a number of sovereigns were spiking. And you know I think the Treasury wanted all markets, not just the US Treasury, but I think all the Treasuries and all the central banks wanted all markets to calm down and get out of this liquidity crisis for lack of a better word. So I think it is a little bit of a two-way street. I think it's uh I think for the people who were arguing that the Fed had to do this in order so that the the US government wouldn't go bankrupt. I think it's a little I think I think it's a stretch. Now I know a lot of people don't agree with me, but I think it's a stretch because I think if the US government goes bankrupt, then France is going bankrupt, Thailand's going bankrupt, Australia's going bankrupt, China's going bankrupt. I don't think that there's any um, any scenario under which Treasury yields spike and foreign yields fall. Um, I'm curious what you think about that. I think
1: it it certainly could happen, uh, but it's not my base case. I think uh, probably going forward over the next several years, uh, any monetary sovereign, so any country that has the power of their own printing press, uh, or you know, it's a trickier case in Europe because they kind of combine their printing presses. But any of these monetary sovereign regions, uh, I think a lot of them are going to try to lock yields below the inflation rate. So uh, that's what they did. That's what the U.S., for example, did back in the 1940s, which was the only other time where U.S. government debt as a percentage of GDP got it, got this high, right? So, I think going forward, you know, they're already talking about yield curve control, and they were talking yep. about it uh, even before the COVID crisis, back in late 2019. They were already talking about yield curve control, and I think that's going to be a, a pretty common policy worldwide. Um, you know, I, as a base case, I'm expecting Treasury yields to remain somewhat higher than their peers. Uh, but I think all of them are going to remain very low, and then over the long term, probably maintain below inflation rate.
0: Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's the goal. I don't think any central bank wants their yields to be rising. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit. We've touched on it a little bit, but let's get into the swap lines, because that's kind of been the primary tool through which the Fed has used over the last three or four months to ease the dollar squeeze, for lack of a better word, right? And uh, I think right now, the outstanding swap lines are around 350 billion. They got up to 450 billion at one point. The idea, so, so li- li- my, my point with the swap lines, and then I've, uh, I've, I've talked about this a lot, is that the number of people think that the swap lines are the tool, either the swap lines or Fed repo um, or reverse repo, are the tools by which the Fed will bail out the rest of the world. And many people have said to me, there's no shortage of dollars, and if there is a shortage of dollars, the Fed will provide every dollar that is needed, and they will bail out the euro-dollar system and including the U.S. dollar system. And the the swap lines is the the, the tool which they've used primarily so far. Um, can you talk to me about your view on the swap lines, and then let's, let's go back and forth on that a little bit. I, I want to get your understanding, or I, I want to understand your view of the, of the swap lines and the extent... To which you think that they will use them, and to the extent to which you think they'll be successful in using them. Sure. So if you look back,
1: uh, even back in uh, 2008, right, which is the first time these tools really came out in earnest, uh, we had uh, the dollar spike during that period. Now, fortunately, at the time, it spiked from a pretty weak level, right? So it it had a right. you know a dollar peak earlier earlier in the 2000s. It was in a more weaker trend at that point, but it had a sharp spike in relation to a similar effect that we saw in 2020 here. We had dollar shortage, we had a spike, we had a rise in the TED spread. And so what the Federal Reserve did is they opened swap lines with several uh, peer central banks, major nations, and provided dollar liquidity in exchange for their currency as collateral. And what we saw is the TED spread uh, went down pretty quickly. So the the swap lines were effective in that. And then the dollar took uh, several more months to work out before that finally went down, but at least it arrested it from continuing to go up and it kind of put it in a range bound state and eventually brought that down. Uh, We saw it again, Uh, you know, since then a couple times, they they briefly used some swap lines in 2012, but it was a much smaller event. And then in 2016, they had a dollar spike, but they didn't have to use swap lines. Uh, In 2020, you know, their first tactic was to bring out the same swap lines they had back in 2008. So we had the TED spread spike, we had the dollar spike, so we opened the swap lines, but then we actually added more countries to the list. We more than doubled the list uh, this time. So they included several major emerging markets. You know, they they excluded some of our more antagonistic, you know, uh, you know, other countries. But for many uh, friendly uh, nations, they opened up all these swap lines. And uh, so we've seen, a you know, a leveling off, uh, as you put it. We're below our maximum. We've seen a sharp uh, decline in the TED spread again. And the dollar went down from its peak of 103. So yeah, I think the swap lines so far have been effective. But they don't, you know, they're not meant to be permanent, right? But they can roll them as much as they want. So at the current time, you know, I don't think the situation is necessarily over. I do think there's a decent probability that that spike we saw in March in the dollar might have been the top, but it's no by no means guaranteed because we have to see what happens later this year if we have, you know, a little bit more virus uh, interactions in, in the economy or if we see kind of, um, disturbances around the election or uh, you know, different effects on the swap lines. But currently, it's so far, it's been effective.
0: Yeah, it certainly has. And I, I think one of the things I want to get across to listeners today, and, and Lynn, I, I know you know this because we, we, we've chatted about it a little bit, but I think it's really important in, in order to understand the big picture and to really understand my view is to understand that there are two different dollar systems. There's the U.S. domestic dollar system and there's the euro dollar system. Now, for those that don't know, euro dollars are dollars that exist outside the United States. So that's not euros. Don't confuse it with the currency euros. It's just dollars that exist outside the United States. And the euro dollar market is arguably as big and potentially even bigger uh, than the US domestic market. The problem is is that based on fractional reserve banking and money getting loaned into its existence is when the flow of credit stops and reverses and goes the other way, that's typically when the central bank has to step in and be the lender of last resort, and you know, kind of plug this liquidity hole. The issue is that there is no entity outside the United States that has the jurisdiction or the authority to print dollars, for lack of a better word, and and, and put new dollars into the system to re collateralize it. Um, and I think that that is the heart of it because, you know. For those who say that the u s. is going to have to continue to print for the for to 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 keep the u s. dollar system going, I don't know who is going to print the euro for the euro dollar system to keep the euro dollar system going. And if you think we're going to have to print a couple trillion domestically, I can promise you we're going to have to print a couple more more than a couple trillion internationally to plug that hole. And so do you believe that the Fed will be able to provide two, three, five, six, ten, whatever the number is, trillion? via swap lines to the international market? I mean, ultimately, do you think this will be successful?
1: I don't think they'll have to do that much because if you look at the total amount of dollar-dominated debt in the world, right, so the BIS estimates that the US going into this crisis had about $53 billion in debt here on our shores, US dollar-dominated debt, which is easier for us to manage because, as you pointed out, we're the ones that get to print dollars. The foreign market, according to BIS, had about 12 trillion or 13 trillion in U.S. dollar-dominated debt. And of course, there's a couple other uh, layers we can put on that if you want to, you know, really look at the full size of it. But if we use that as like kind of a baseline number, at least it's at least that big, if not larger. So they have a much, even though it's a very large problem, it's a smaller, you know, it's about a fifth of the size of the amount of dollar-dominated debt in the U.S. uh, Going by that number, or you know, a little more than a, you know, about a fifth. So the magnitudes to address that are somewhat smaller. And I think an important thing to look at is whether it's a solvency crisis or a liquidity crisis, because for some countries, it's more of a solvency crisis, whereas for others, it's more of a liquidity crisis. And one way I look at it is by looking at how much dollar-dominated debt does that country have, either in their sovereign government or their corporations, compared to how much foreign exchange reserves they have and how much overall kind of assets do they have, and particularly U.S. dollar-dominated Dollar denominated assets. So if you look at the full scale, you know, if there's 12 trillion in US debt, uh, dollar denominated debt outside of the country, uh, on the other side of that ledger, foreigners own about 40 trillion in US assets. And that includes stocks, that includes corporate bonds, and that includes about 7 trillion in treasuries. And from what we saw in March and from what we saw in prior periods, they can sell those treasuries and sell those other assets in order to get dollars. So for many countries, it's not necessarily a solvency crisis because they have more assets in dollars than they have debts in dollars, but it creates a sharp liquidity problem if they have to sell those assets, both for themselves and for the US. Now, for some countries like Turkey, Chile, uh, Argentina, uh, Indonesia, Mexico, they have a lot of dollar diamond debts even relative to their foreign exchange reserves. So they they face more of a solvency crisis where they don't necessarily have the dollar assets to sell. And that's when they have to really look at, you know, are they going to have to default, or is the dollar going to weaken enough to give them more breathing room, right? So I think whether or not it's kind of a major crisis that we have to do trillions and trillions in swap lines to solve, I think it's, uh, you know, kind of a useful approach to kind of look at it country by country and break down how does each country stand. And for the most part, um, if you look at Europe and Japan, you know, the Credit Suisse, uh, you know. Estimates that their uh, net worth, total asset, the total assets minus liabilities, is about 115 trillion dollars. Now, most of that is denominated in euros and yen, right? So, uh, and the BIS estimates that out of the 12 trillion in uh, U.S. Uh, uh, debt, like dollar-dominated debt outside of the country, uh, only about 4 trillion of that is in emerging markets, which leaves the other 8 trillion mostly in foreign developed markets. Uh, so, you know, they have 115 trillion assets. Uh, they own a good chunk of that $40 trillion in dollar-denominated assets. And then they have about $8 trillion in dollar-denominated debts, plus, you know, if, if we're being more conservative, probably a couple other layers of, of dollar debt on top of that. Uh, so in my view, it's for most countries, it's not a solvency crisis, it's a liquidity crisis. Whereas for uh, s- especially smaller emerging markets and a couple of the larger emerging markets, it, it's, it ventures into being a solvency crisis.
0: So do you think that these other countries will sell their U.S. dollar assets in order to pay off their U.S. dollar debts?
1: I don't think they're going to have to because I, my my base case is that the Fed will do what they can to prevent that from happening. So if the whole system unwinds in a very disorderly way, that's, you know, that's a potential outcome. And that harms both uh, U.S. markets and foreign markets. But uh, from what we've seen, they're probably going to do whatever they can to provide liquidity to prevent that sort of uh,
0: forced sell-off. Okay, so let's pretend for a second, and I, I will acknowledge that you know you're possibly right. Maybe the Fed can provide enough liquidity in the short term to put off or delay the solvency issue. My question to you is: Let's say that they don't. Let's take this. Let's take the hypothetical where the Fed doesn't provide the liquidity to the rest of the market. Uh, who do you? Th- in what order do you think uh, uh, economies come under pressure? Do you think they all come down together, or do you think it's a knock-on effect of dominoes?
1: Well, I think the emerging markets, especially the ones that have, you know, the ones I mentioned, the ones that have more more dollar debt than FX reserves, they're the ones that are probably first to fall. And we actually saw this play out over the past couple of years. We saw Argentina crack. We saw Turkey crack. We started to see Chile crack. So uh, in order roughly of how kind of insolvent they are is roughly the order they'd begin cracking in. With the U.S. and then some of the other majors that have, uh, you know, far more assets than liabilities, they'd be the the kind of last to have these these issues. But uh, risk assets, you know, both especially U.S. dollar dominated ones, but really risk assets across the world would have sharp sell-off if they have to sell assets in order to raise dollars.
0: OK, so I agree. So you agree, though, that we would have some kind of a progression? They wouldn't all come down together and the U.S. wouldn't necessarily be the first to fall? I don't want to put words in your mouth. I just want to make sure I understand uh, what your argument.
1: No, yeah, the US would not be first. There are some emerging markets that would be you know, first in line.
0: And so if those emerging markets start to fall, do you think that there would be a contagion effect to where now the middle countries, the kind of the mid-market countries, for lack of a better word, would start to fall? Uh,
1: yes. But at that point, we'd also have the treasury market most likely seizing up like we saw in March. So we'd very quickly have a lot of Treasuries being basically put to the Fed. So the Fed would have to ramp up their QE unless they want to have the Treasury market remain illiquid, which they can't do. when they're also trying to issue a large number of Treasuries to fund these fiscal programs and to make up for the tax shortfalls that they're having. So uh, this would quickly become the Fed's problem again because they would have to. Uh, you know, make sure that there's liquidity in the Treasury market.
0: Okay, so I agree with you. I agree with you It would be a challenge for the Treasury. Why wouldn't it become an issue for Canada's central bank? And why wouldn't it become an issue for England's central bank and Germany's central bank? Why would it only become an issue for the U.S. central bank?
1: Well, it'd be an issue for all of them, uh, especially in order of um, how much kind of sovereign debt they have, because that's the first thing that they, you know, as a a sovereign monetary system, they can't let break, right? So uh, roughly in terms of debt. Uh, so the ones that have control of their own uh, currency are somewhat more buffered. So the U.S., yeah. Canada, Japan. Now that the big question is Europe, because many of them, you know, they've they've linked their their printing press together. So it would Great. come down to how well they can coordinate. So for example, I also think there'd be uh, pretty significant risk in Italy and Spain, for example. Yeah, Great. but le- less well, so, so in in Germany and things like that.
0: So so if this happened, let, let, let's again let's. For the sake of assumption, this this progression happened, right? The the EM dominoes fall, and then some of the bigger countries fall, and it eventually works its way up to where you know the Fed and the you know ECB and the Bank of Japan are starting to get, uh, you know, their rates are starting to rise. What do you think happens to the dollar in that environment? Is that an environment where the dollar would rise, or do you think the dollar would sell off there?
1: Oh, in that brief moment, yeah, we'd have what we saw in March. We'd have a a pretty significant spike in the dollar, most likely, because that would be the key thing that's kind of uh, causing all these risk assets to fall.
0: Okay. So then is it fair to say that because you think that the high might be in for the dollar, I think you, you've said that April or the, the March high may have been the high in the dollar, and that because the Fed is kind of, uh, the rate of change with the Fed is quicker and faster and more powerful than the others, that's kind of led to the dollar selling off. Do you think that the Fed will continue to be the most aggressive and and will be able to continue to you know, keep the dollar lower, or do you think that we are going to have one of these reescalations at some point?
1: So, I think over the next several years, as a base case, that the the Fed's probably going to be more aggressive in terms of uh, balance sheet expansion than some of these other major countries. Yeah. And this, for a lot of reasons, you know, our country is very uh, highly reliant on the services sector. For example, we have, um, you know, more kind of wealth concentration, so our median citizen is somewhat less well off than. The median citizen in Japan and Europe, even though our our average wealth is is in many cases higher, so our median is more vulnerable, and that's the people that have been the most impacted in this uh, kind of environment that we're in. So uh, we can kind of think of it as like a feedback loop. If they don't do enough fiscal, you know, our country potentially risks uh, as much or more civil unrest as some of these other countries uh, because we have more people that are kind of just they don't have any net worth and and uh, have lost income streams. So. Uh, And we've also, for example, if you look back in 2019, the U.S. went into this with a larger deficit as a percentage of GDP than most other countries. So Germany came into this with a fiscal surplus. Uh, Even some of the more troubled European countries, they came in with, you know, 2% or 3% of GDP in deficits. So the U.S. actually went into this already kind of uh, basically doing an MMT experiment where we were were rising our deficits, uh, you know, even at the peak of an economic cycle. And just seeing how far we could go, so we went into this more structurally uh, in a fiscal deficit. So as this plays out, you know, I think there are going to be periods where the U.S. falls behind because if we get so far ahead, for say that you know, like we did this quarter, we did so much more aggressive st- uh, stimulus than a lot of the other countries. I think we could see a partial pullback where others catch up a little bit, but then uh, I think the U.S. is going to continue to kind of pull forward.
0: So you touched on two things there, and, and I, wanna, I want to I want to I want to make sure I come back to it. Uh, but before we get completely off the swap line, I want I want to touch on one other thing. Um, let's go back to the scenario where we have a if if this doesn't self uh, if we, if we don't have a reemergence of growth and we do have to go back to extending swap lines in greater amounts, um, and we do get kind of this progression or falling of dominoes in an order. When these other countries, when we extend them liquidity via swap lines, right? The way it works is we give them dollars, and they give us euros or yen or Brazilian reals or Australian, whatever it is, right? They they post their currency. So where do those since those countries are also in, under pressure and they're you know feeling the deflationary pressures, where do they get the currency to pledge to the Fed?
1: Well, they print it.
0: Exactly. So if they print it and they give us their currencies, how is it possible that we can print more than them if they have to print in order to get our dollars? If we have to print more to bail out the rest of the world, but they also have to print in order to get the dollars, how does how do we outprint them?
1: Because we'd be printing well to do, support that while also, in my view, probably printing more than them to support our own economy. And one way I look at it is that we have to look at the starting point for which currencies can we say are overvalued or undervalued, right? So, uh, and there's a couple of different ways to do that. Some people prefer to look at charts, but, uh, fundamentally, I look at the balance of trade as kind of the key factor. So countries that have perpetually strong currency, the currencies, you know, arguably overvalued their import strength is very strong. Whereas their export competitiveness is weak because their currency is so strong. So, um, the U S for several decades now has had, you know, because of our global reserve status, we've had very strong import power, and our export competitiveness has declined. So our currency is propped up by reserve status and propped up by a dollar shortage. So we, you know, we consume more than we produce. We've exported our supply chains effectively to the rest of the world, whereas countries like Japan, uh, you know, Europe's pretty balanced in this regard. Their currencies, despite problems, are not necessarily overvalued. They actually have closer to equilibrium between imports and exports. So, in a situation where liquidity for all currencies becomes very abundant, ours is the one from the starting point that's held up by the dollar shortage. So, uh, if that dollar shortage gets relieved, like we saw, you know, back in 2017 to some extent, and like we saw, you know, during the previous period of dollar weakness, uh, you know, in the around the global financial crisis time period. Uh, the dollar can fall relative to those other currencies just to get back to equilibrium, especially because now we have more of a political mandate to bring some of our supply chains home, which is very hard to do when you have a currency that's so strong that your exports are less competitive.
0: Well, but so you've just explained on the supply side, but I think, in my opinion, you're forgetting the demand side. Um, again, if you go back to those two systems, the euro dollar market and the U.S. domestic market, there's a, there, there's a huge non-U.S. dollar market there is not a huge non us euro market there's not a huge non japan yen market there's not a huge non brazil real market and so if 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 you underst- if if you think about the way the swap lines work um, this we let's just say that europe gives us you know a trillion dollars of euros and we give them a trillion dollars of dollars they don't take those dollars and go off and pay debt that already exists. They take that trillion dollars and they loan it out to make it $10 trillion in more dollar debt. So they're reinforcing the non-dollar system, or that they're reinforcing and making bigger the euro-dollar system. So I don't see how, if, if they're reinforcing the system, how is the system ever going to change? How will we not just, maybe they can push this crisis down the road, but how do we not just end up back at this crisis again?
1: One way I look at it is that we're getting to the point where it's becoming more structural, right? So whenever the dollar, whenever the dollar gets strong, foreigners, because the dollar's so strong, they're they they're not accumulating FX reserves anymore. That tends to at least not at the same pace. So in the three dollars strong periods we've had ever since the 1970s, whenever the dollar gets close to these you know really high peaks, foreigners, you know they stop funding the treasury market essentially, or at least they they sharply slow it down. So Uh, That happened back in the 1980s. That happened again in the early 2000s. And that happened again ever since 2015. So uh, they stopped funding the U.S. Treasury. And then the federal government, I mean, the Federal Reserve and domestic institutions are forced to basically self-fund U.S. deficits. So now we're moving into a period where debt is, you know, we went into this year with 106% federal debt to GDP. Now it's already over 120% just because of all the, the COVID response. So now we're getting into a more structural period where- If the dollar remains strong, and if that uh, cycle perpetuates, as you pointed out, then it's going to be very hard for the U.S. to uh, rebuild the jobs that we lost, right? Because, you know, we've already exported most of our manufacturing chains. It's going to be very hard to bring them back in such a strong dollar environment. Uh, You're going to face civil unrest. You're going to face higher and higher, uh, you know, just political tensions, political polarization, which we've already been seeing. Uh, and we're going to have similar problems in the rest of the world too, especially starting yeah. in those in those emerging markets that are the most exposed. We already saw protests in many emerging markets, and then, you know, it, it, we saw it in France. So, as long as that system continues to that level, uh, we're going to see basically uh, high unemployment and civil unrest. But the reason that the U.S. is potentially more impacted is because we're the ones that have essentially exported our supply chains, and we're heavily reliant on the services sector, and We have, uh, you know, left it so that our our, uh, middle class is much much harder for them to uh, find employment uh, in this environment because, you know, we have less manufacturing and the virus, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, has impacted the service sector even more than the manufacturing sector, at least outside of certain very cyclical sectors. So the U.S. is going to find it increasingly difficult to get back to full employment if they don't weaken the dollar, which means you know, from my view, it's, it's always useful to understand incentives, right? So, uh, when we talk about a dollar shortage, we're talking about a shortage in something that is not inherently scarce. They can print them as much as they want. They can just they can distribute them as much as they want. And currencies all throughout the you know history devalue over time, and you know they can devalue at different rates. But in this current regime, as as long as the dollar remains as strong, the U.S. is arguably more pressured. And all these countries are going to t- continue to have large trade surpluses with us.
0: Why would they continue to have a trade surplus if we go into a massive recession and we can't buy their goods anymore? Why are they still going to have a, a surplus? Why, why are their economies not going to come under pressure? Like if, you th- if you think about the, the, who are the biggest clients in the world, are China and the US are the two biggest markets? Yes. Now, if we go into this massive recession and we can no longer buy these goods from other countries, how is that not going to impact those countries? How are their deficits not going to increase? Oh they will. But it becomes their how uh, quickly, right? So, okay, so
1: because they can still uh, to some extent sell to each other and because they make more goods. If
0: yeah, you know, but they when, lose- but when they but when they sell to each other, what do they invoice it in? What currency do they invoice it in? Dollars, usually. Right. About 45% of global trade is invoiced yep. in US dollars. So if if we get into it, let's say for the let's say the central banks are able to push this problem off for another 5 years, somehow they're able to delay it, right? Whatever happened in March, they're able to delay it happening again for five years. And over that five years, the, the US has to fund their own deficits, and the Fed has to buy all the bonds or whatever, however you want to you know, determine that. And over that same time period, we start extending swap lines to other countries because they have liquidity problems. And they take those swap lines, and they extend dollar debt, because that's what a swap line does, is it extends dollar debt, and it increases dollar debt. But over that same time period, those foreigners are no longer buying. US treasuries. What happens to their the amount of their reserves versus their amount of. US debt?'t uh, it, Does, it starts to increase, right? So I guess I guess I can't figure out how we ever get out of this problem. I can figure out how we can delay it. Yeah, I just can't figure out how we don't eventually run up against it at some point again. It's kind of like you know, 2008 and nine we had this big crisis and they, they papered over it. but now here we are again. Um, I can figure out lots of ways they can delay it. I just can't figure out how they can solve it. And I'm just curious if you if you have a an idea in mind where they could actually solve this.
1: No, I think that's a great question. I think that's what a lot of us are kind of wondering because I can see a range of possibilities, but uh, there's so much variance for what they could do from a very uh, orderly way to a more disorderly way. So for example, if you look back over history, um, uh, the US uh, G- uh, GDP used to be, you know, 30, or 40% of the total world GDP. But that's declined over time as the rest of the world, and especially yep. the emerging world, has grown collectively faster than the U.S. So we now represent a much smaller percentage of world GDP. So back in the early days of the, the current dollar system, it made more sense because the U.S. was the largest uh, consumer, of, importer of commodities, and we were by far the largest uh, economy. But as the world has kind of outgrown us to some extent, right, Uh, The world is, you know, we're still the largest individual economy, but we're no longer the largest commodity importer, and we're no longer as large of a share of the economy as we once were. So a simple solution, well, not simple because it's, it's, you know, it's going to take a lot of time, is to uh, uh, do multiple currency oil pricing as a starter, or and and more broadly than that, multi-currency commodity pricing. And of course, there are other solutions down the road. They could do uh, SDRs for global trade, but that requires uh, a whole lot of coordination, which in this environment is very challenging. Uh, but the simpler solution is to basically see you know, a multipolar currency world rather than something that's so heavily focused on one currency. And you know, because people often ask, OK, if the dollar is not going to be the global reserve currency, who is? Who's going to take it from us, right? Is it going to be the euro? Is it going to be China? Like, of course not. But the answer, because even them, there's no, there's no longer one country large enough to supply the currency both for themselves and for the whole world to use, the whole world to be locked into all commodity pricing in one currency. So if they manage to delay it, that gives them more time to do multi-currency oil pricing. Europe could buy uh, oil in euros, for example. Uh, it's possible we could see China or Japan being able to buy commodities in their currencies. And that's how you can begin to diversify global debts relative to global trade.
0: Okay. So let's, you just touched on another part that I think is incredibly important, and that's the political part and the geopolitical part of, of currencies as well. Um, there's the finance side, and there's this number side, and then there's the political side, right? Um, do you think that the U.S. wants to give up the, the, the global reserve currency? Do you think that the U.S. would stand by and, a, quote unquote, allow, for lack of a better word, Saudi Arabia to start selling a large percent of their oil to China and yuan or Europe in euros?
1: I think it depends on which portions of the U.S. So, for example, uh, this current structure of having a very strong dollar, it does uh, benefit a very select few, but then it harms a lot of the You know, a lot of the blue collar vote in particular, which, uh, you know, so that's why even Trump himself has wavered back and forth on whether or not he wants a weaker dollar or a stronger dollar. So I think at the current time, the U.S. is trying to have its cake and eat it, too. It's trying to bring back supply chains. You know, it wants to at least talk about bringing back supply chains and try to, you know, bring some of those manufacturing jobs back, but at the same time wants to have a global reserve currency, right? So doing both of those things is extraordinarily challenging. There's almost no way to see it happening. Maybe you have some ideas. I'd like to hear them about how they could do both.
0: Well, so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think we're getting back to this. You know, we're talking about moving to a pol- multipolar currency world, but we're also talking about the way we get there is we're extending dollar loans in the euro dollar market to allow them time to do that. Yeah. But, but the extension of euro dollar loans is diametrically opposed to moving into a pol- multipolar currency world. If you take out dollar loans, you need dollar reserves in order to match your revenues with your liabilities. So, you know, if if we're if we're extending dollar loans and the dollar system via swap lines, it's in direct contrast to moving towards a multipolar world. And and, and I don't think and, and so that's one issue. But the other issue is I don't think that the US is ready to give up the world reserve currency. And I don't think world reverse currencies are ever uh, you know, given up. I think they're always taken. Now, maybe it's done behind the curtain, so not everybody sees it. But um, there's tremendous advantages to having the global reserve currency. And I think it's a little bit of a misnomer to say that um, you know, a strong currency is bad for your economy. I think a strong currency is good for the blue-collar workers. I think if you have a strong currency, um, your purchasing power is higher. Um, I get into a little bit of a conundrum when I talk to some of my friends in the gold world who say, you know, the US can't survive with a strong dollar, but they also think we should move to a gold standard. Well, the gold standard is going to be a very strong dollar, you know, that that, that would lead to the dollar being very strong versus other currencies. So, um, you know, I think that there's a way that, well, I. long story short, I don't think there's a way out of this mess. I don't think that there's a way out of the mess of the US dollar debt, both the US and dollar debt and the euro dollar debt. I don't think that there's any way that we won't run up against this roadblock in the world again, because I don't think that the world will change behavior until they're forced to change behavior. And I don't think that that the US will willingly stand down as the global reserve currency. But I do think there is a way, and I'm I'm probably not going to say this right, and I'm probably going to butcher this a little bit, but there was a there was a there was a guy named Verfacus. I think it's Ver is it Verifakis? the 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 Greek uh, the Greek politician who wrote this uh, about the Matador, where the U.S. would extend these dollar loans, and then ten years later, you know they couldn't they couldn't be paid back, so they'd go in and they'd harvest. You know the, the, these countries would go bankrupt, or these companies would go bankrupt, and then the U.S. would go in and negotiate uh, preferable terms again. I think that the U.S. is going to use the dollar as a weapon over the next four or five years. I think it's going to end, and I should say, I think this is going to end extremely badly for the U.S. This is not a game where the U.S. ends up a winner. I just think that they are going to win longer than everybody else, if that's the right way to say it. I think that the swap lines will be used as a political tool. I think the swap lines will be used as a geopolitical negotiating um, carrot, for lack of a better word. And I think we will end up in this multipolar world. I do agree with you there. Um, and I don't know if it'll be the US versus China or US versus Russia or, or how it'll actually come down. My guess is that it'll be China versus US. Um, but I think people are going to, I think countries around the world are going to have to decide. It's going to kind of going back to that uh, George Bush line, which I hate, by the way. You know, you're either with us or against us. And, um, you know, I should also point out that I don't even really like my idea. <laughs> I don't think this is the way it should be. I just think it's the way it's going to be. Um, I don't think that the US uh, is going to willingly stand down. I think that they are going to become, if people think that we've been a bully, I think we're going to become more of a bully. Um, And I think we're going to use the dollar to our advantage. And I think until the rest of the world in mass says, you know, screw you, for lack of a better word, as it relates to dollars, I I don't see a way out of this mess. Um, And I think on a relative basis, US will... Do better than the rest of the world because I do think we will try to bring some of these manufacturing um, econ- businesses back to the United States. The strategically important industries back to the United States. You know, industries that are you know have national security implications back to the United States. And I think the Treasury will, or the the tr- combination of the MMT Treasury and the Fed will issue however much currencies necessary domestically to rebuild those industries. But I think we will deny. The liquidity to the rest of the world if they're competing with us in those industries. Um, and then this is why I think it all ends badly. I, I think in the short term, the u s. outperforms the rest of the world, but I think it all ends badly because I just don't see a way out of this dollar mess. I mean it's it's it's, it's a trap of the biggest uh, I mean, it's it's kind of we talked about this one time about the singularity, right? All these different things are hitting. We've got this monetary crisis. We've got political crisis. We've got social crisis. Um, and it's not just a, it's definitely in the U.S., uh, but it's all over the world. You know, we've seen it a lot in in Europe, and the Middle East over the last couple of years. We're starting to see it, in, you know, in places like Hong Kong. Um, so it, it's kind of a global thing.
1: Yeah, I think that's definitely a tail risk to consider: is the politicization of swap lines, and uh, you know, in general, access to the dollar, and while trying to forcibly bring our supply chains home. Uh, one thing I'd point out is that every time you know the harvesting cycle, as you as you referred to mm-hmm. it as. Over that long term, the U.S., it's not like we reset fully each time. So over the, over multiple decades, uh, the U.S. net international investment position continues to deteriorate. And for, for viewers that don't know what that means, basically, uh, you know, a net international investment position measures uh, how much assets does America own of foreign countries. Most, You know, how much do Americans own overseas versus how much American assets do foreigners own. Uh, so if you look back, uh, you know, after World War One, World War Two, we were a creditor nation, so we owned more foreign assets than foreigners owned of our assets. And over time, especially starting in, in you know early 1970s, that began deteriorating because we we kind of fixed the world to this dollar standard. It strengthened the dollar relative, you know, it strengthened our import power and it weakened our ex- export competitiveness. So we started developing a more structural trade deficit. So we we sent dollars overseas, we sent supply chains overseas, they reinvested those dollars into the treasury market, but also into our stock market, our housing market, our corporate bond market. So uh, by 1985, we shifted to becoming a, a debtor nation. So foreigners owned more of our assets than we owned of their assets. And then by uh, the 2008 crisis, our net international position was about negative 10% of our GDP. And in the past you know, 10, 12 years alone, that accelerated pretty dramatically. Now, the government currently estimates that our net international investment position is worse than negative 50% of GDP. So foreigners own $40 trillion in US assets, and we own 20, $29 trillion in foreign assets for an $11 trillion net deficit, which is a little over half of our GDP. And I've seen some estimates that might Decrease, decrease that a little bit. So it might only be negative 30%, negative 40%. Uh, there's a, you know, somewhat of a range there. But uh, the official government estimate is worse than negative 50%. And so over the long term, foreigners hold more and more of our assets and therefore have more and more leverage over us when it comes to uh, how much they can damage our treasury market, how much they can damage our stock market if they're forced to sell those assets in order to get uh, you know dollars. And that's why uh, you know I view understanding the incentives of the. US uh, very important here because if we try to politicize swap lines uh, which is possible uh, I think they're gonna find out pretty quickly how damaging that is to us because that's gonna you know foreigners have 40 trillion in, in basically leverage against us that they can use if we try to uh, you know uh, sharply increase
0: let's say they do that for a second let's let's just stay on let's take Chile for an example right or let's take Mexico. If they sell all their, and they they, they actually don't have a great, uh, you know, dollar reserve versus dollar liability ratio. Yeah. But let's let's just use any country. Let's say they sell fifty percent of their U.S. Treasuries or seventy five percent of their U.S. Treasuries to pay off their dollar debt, and now they're left with little dollar reserves. How do they operate on the global stage when they no longer have dollars?
1: Well most of them are still producing cash flows and getting dollars that way. so for example, Japan has right. has a trade surplus with us, Europe has a trade surplus with us, and China has a trade surplus with us. Uh, so I do like I pointed out, there's some emerging markets that are just would
0: but, potential- but, but I guess my point is, is if, if, if if they're selling all their dollar assets and they're pushing us into this major major recession or depression as a result, their trade with us is going to collapse. Yep. So how do, they, how do they maintain this great trade balance if, if, if their number two or number one customer is no longer trading with them or is, or they, they've lost 50% of their, their trade?
1: This is why I think it's important to factor policy response into this, because as we saw earlier this year, once this starts happening, the, the response is so large, right? Because if they don't do that, we get a massive deflationary shock all throughout the world, the US, right. uh, international markets. And basically, it takes – uh, a lot of imagination to assume how restrained politicians would be in such an environment where risk assets are selling off, the treasury market's becoming a liquid, uh, you know, and then the Federal Reserve and the Treasury just stand by and say, "Okay, we have we have protests in the street, well, think, yeah. we have yeah, assets, yeah."
0: I, I think we're in total agreement there. I I, I just have trouble. I, I I hear your answers and 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 the uh, the the data that you cite is correct because I mean I've gone I've gone and I've looked it up and I just. The, that that kind of talks to me about what's happened in the last five or six years. I'm, I think the next five or six years are going to be much different than the last five or six years. And so I'm trying to figure out how do all the positive things that the that the that the international community have continue for the next five or six years, even though everything's going to be bad for the U.S. for the next five or six years. Do you see what I'm saying? Like a lot of people will say to me, "Look what look look what look what the you know the the trade uh, surpluses and the net." Investment positions, you know, from I don't know, 2014 or 2012, whatever the number is, until now, you know, the the, the U.S. has gotten worse and the international community has gotten better. But now the U.S. all of a sudden for the next five years is going to go into a hole, and all these great things that happened to the international community is going to continue to do well. I just I, I can't I can't get there, I'm, I I just don't see how that happens. I cannot figure out how the U.S. goes into a massive recession and the rest of the world doesn't go with us.
1: No, I think if that happens, we all go into a massive recession as well. That's why my base case is that as soon as that begins forming, every month that, we kind of go further and further into that hole. There's more and more policy response by the, the Treasury and the Federal Reserve to address that. And I think if we're thinking about tail risks that can happen of like if they're just willing to shut those off and just kind of, you know, play chicken with the rest of the world and we have this big deflationary shock and we see what order we all break in, you know, one is I think that takes a very large kind of um, almost like respect for politicians, how, how restrained they would have to be in that environment, which is not
0: normally, right.
1: a, it's not normally a, you know, kind of yeah. a something I'd expect them to have, but two, we can imagine an opposite scenario. What if they do a tail risk in the other direction? What if they realize, uh, you know, how damaging that is and they try to get ahead of it. So for example, instead of politicizing swap lines, what if they make some of them permanent? So for example, um, uh, you know, the Federal Reserve has done all sorts of things in this crisis that people you know are still horrified by like buying junk bond ETFs sure. and buying individual yeah. corporate bonds and all sorts of things now what if they for example the way that the liquidity swaps work is you know we give them a dollar loan they give us currencies collateral uh, so if we move to say uh, you know if, if the. US realizes it's in its best interest to move to a more uh, multipolar currency world right so most currencies have foreign exchange reserves. Uh, now, for many countries, that's low, like maybe 5% of their GDP. And for other countries, that's very high. It can be 20%, 30%, 40%. And for some of them, it's over 100%. But that's rare. So if the US uh, currently doesn't have almost any foreign exchange reserves, our, there's less than 1% of our GDP because for mm-hmm. the past several decades, we have not needed them. We are the, we are the axiom that the other ones hold. Right. So if the US enters a more multipolar uh, currency world, one thing that might want to do is establish some foreign exchange reserves. And one thing it could do is simply restructure the, the currency swaps. to to basically be, be a permanent swap, like we give you a trillion dollars, you give us a trillion dollars worth of euros, uh, same for yen and a couple other major currencies. And the US basically uses those to establish foreign exchange reserves. And they've, you know, kind of sent out permanent dollars to the rest of the world. And I'm not saying that's going to happen. I'm saying if we're imagining kind of Tail risk scenarios where we politicize swap lines. We also should imagine, you know, kind of opposite scenarios of how this. You know, if we're trying to yep. imagine how how could it unfold? How could it kind of be resolved? That, that's one of the. Options. I, I
0: agree. I, I agree with you. That that I think it's highly unlikely, but I can't rule it out. And I think you're right. That would be one way. Again, I think that would be that would be so to a certain extent the U.S. relinquishing all the advantages of the yep. global reserve currency, which I think is. Again, unlikely, but you're right. I can't rule it out. That that would be potentially one way to do it. Um, well, let's talk. You 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 brought up something there. Um, you mentioned what you know. Let's imagine these 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 uh, tail risk scenarios where they go the other way and where they're you know typically central banks and uh, governments are reactive agencies. They they they're not proactive, right? They see the crisis, they react to it, it tides it over for a while till the next crisis, and they react to it again. But maybe they get maybe they do get proactive, right? And one of the things that I find interesting right now is the cash that the Treasury has in their account at the Fed is the biggest it has ever been. It's yeah. like one and a half trillion dollars. Now, it ain't gonna last because we have, you know, these huge trillion dollar multi trillion dollar deficits. So it's definitely gonna get spent. But what I find interesting is that i think part of the reason they had to extend the swap line is because they issued so many treasuries that the treasury sucked up all those you know what is it they sucked up like a trillion dollars of dollar liquidity in the last six months or nine months or something and so now it's in their account and if they had not if they had not extended the swap lines i think the dollar would have shot up even higher because that's typically what happens when the, the when the treasury issues debt but now what i find interesting is that they've got More cash than they've ever had, but they are also scheduled to have like the biggest quarterly treasury issuance in history. I believe. I think Q three they're supposed to issue another one or two trillion dollars worth of of debt. I don't have the right number right in front of me. But they've already. You see what I'm saying? Like I'm trying to figure out what's going on here. I I honestly, I don't. I don't have the answer. I I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that. Maybe they're. Maybe they are proactively getting ready for a huge fiscal spend you know, in Q3 or Q4 or Q1 2021. Um, but do you have any thoughts on that? Because I honestly don't have the answer right now. I, I don't know. I'm trying to figure it out.
1: Yeah, I don't have the answer either, but I have looked it up. So as you pointed out, it's over $1.5 trillion in the TGA. And uh, historically, it's never really gone over $400 billion. And even that was pretty high. They started yeah. to have a higher levels yeah. so they could deal with like debt ceiling debates and things like that. They would have cash yeah. on hand. And their official target is because uh, if you look at Treasury press releases, they want to have it down to 800 billion by the end of the fiscal year.
0: In, which, in two weeks? No, I think by the end of the second quarter, right?
1: I thought it was the end of the the final quarter, which for them is uh,
0: their uh, fiscal okay. year. Oh, uh, maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. Yeah, okay, yeah.
1: Their, their fiscal year ends uh, September 30th. So uh, yeah. they want to have, but that's still 700 billion that they want to draw down, <laughs> and so Crazy, right? part part of that could come from uh, you know ongoing current fiscal programs. Uh, but I, I'm assuming that they want to draw that for kind of a late summer fiscal program. Uh, we've already had, you know, the Trump administration supported a, another round of fiscal. Uh, the House Democrats, they they passed that, that, other, that very large fiscal attempt that they know wouldn't get through the Senate, but they passed one. And then the Senate uh, has already talked about kind of a smaller package. So I think, you know, all the different, you know, stakeholders have different views on what that fiscal is. But they seem to be in agreement that there's probably going to be another round of fiscal this year. Um yeah. so it's not a certainty but it's definitely you know I don't think that the I don't think either party wants to be the one to pull away the punch bowl because they right. know that they'll get blamed for it during the election. So I think they're kind of planning to have a lot of that liquidity for that next round of fiscal but I do think they're they might find it challenging to get that down to their 800 billion dollar target by the end of the fiscal year.
0: Okay, so let's say that the let's say that they do that, and let's say they can just continue to pump out these treasuries, right? And to your point, um, you know, the the foreigners are no longer sterilizing it or whatever, so it's largely, you know, the U.S. domestic market and mainly the treasury. You know, they go through a few steps, but essentially they're monetizing the debt, yeah. as our, as as is everyone else. So again, yeah. I don't think it's it's not a unique thing to the United States, but you yeah. know, it is what it is. Um, You know, if they continue to issue treasuries at that rate, and Powell just continues to you know do QE at the rate that he's doing now, and he actually said, well, I don't know if it was yesterday or did he testify this morning?" Yes. Well, the Fed Fed meeting was last week, and then I think he testified. It was either today or yesterday, and he made the I'm going to paraphrase this, but he basically made the comment that if, if 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 markets recover, then we would taper our bond purchases, and if they if they don't recover, then we'll continue. So I guess my point is is if he doesn't, I mean the fact that he even mentioned the word taper, I thought was kind of shocking because they've yeah. been just so dovish lately, right? Um, but if if they don't increase, but we have this massive increase of treasuries, it's kind of a net tightening, right? Yeah, in in Q3. So I think we're it's you know, they've got all this cash. I'm I don't know. I, I think Q3 is going to be super interesting. I, I think it's going to be volatile. I don't know if it will be as volatile as Q1. But I think it's going to be much more volatile than Q2. Uh, do you have any, any any thoughts on that?
1: I view it the same way. So uh, as we go uh, later into the summer, at the end of July, some of those uh, extra unemployment checks expire yep. unless they're unless they're extended. So I think we could we're risking kind of potentially more civil unrest uh, unless those are addressed. Uh, and then uh, there's kind of you know, there's two main catalysts. One is if the Fed tries to taper, and if we get a lot of fiscal while the Fed's tapering, that's you know that's dollar bullish. That that drains liquidity. Uh, on the other hand, if they try to taper fiscal uh, and continue tapering monetary, then we get a like a potential deflationary crunch again, right? So we have kind of a loss of buying power. We get another defla- deflationary crunch that could be also dollar bullish. And on the other hand, if they do large fiscal and if the Fed accommodates by Increasing their monetization rate again, so they they suck up all that extra issuance. And if the TGA uh, account tries to draw down to get closer to their seven, their eight hundred billion dollar uh, fiscal year end target, we could see a big flush of liquidity. And I think that's kind of yeah. that's kind of Trump's probably dream scenario was to get a big flush of liquidity, uh, you know, in the late summer, early fall, right before the election.
0: And so, that, that's typically bad for the dollar when that happens. That's typically yeah. the dollar that, that t- dollar typically falls on that on on that yeah. kind of a spend.
1: So I think we could see um, kind of a kind of a pinball, uh, you know, with the dollar going back and forth, depending on which one of those things is happening at any given time. We could see, for example, a period of tightening and then we could see a big flush of the the account. So we could see kind of a dollar go up. We get you know more and more liquidity uh, issues. We could see kind of a pullback in equities. And then we could get that big TGA flush to kind of prop up risk assets and devalue the dollar by a few percentage points going into the election. There's a couple different kind of variables, and it's important to watch out for the timing.
0: Okay, so we've talked a lot about uh, you know the the swap lines. We've talked a lot about Treasury issuance. We've talked a little bit about politics. Um, is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you think that we that we should uh, focus on?
1: Sure. I, I guess I have a, a main question for you: is if you were to kind of phrase the the dollar milkshake theory today? So. Yep. uh I won't put words in your mouth, but going back a few years when it was proposed, it was based on the idea that the the U.S. was basically raising rates while most of the world was not. So we were we were monetary tightening. We were kind of doing uh, very aggressive fiscal policy while also monetary tightening. We were kind of sucking up dollar, sucking up liquidity from the rest of the world. Now, starting in late 2019, when we started to cut rates, and then especially when we shifted to uh, QE. I think the the narrative for the dollar milkshake focused more on the foreign dollar-denominated debts. So the whole euro-dollar market uh, is that how you kind of characterize that? That it kind of shifted yeah. to be more focused on the the difficulty of unraveling that foreign dollar exposure. And is the actual is the is the kind of the tight monetary policy done? Like how would you how would you phrase yeah. the dollar milkshake theory today?
0: You know, as with everything, as as the as events change you need to kind of uh, be ready to adapt and, and change along with them i don't think the milkshake theory has changed all that much although the primary focus has left from interest rates to other to other aspects so you know the dollar milkshake theory basically says the us has a straw that we're going to suck up the liquidity from the rest of the world now the primary driver or the primary characteristic of that straw 2 or 3 years ago was higher interest rates and the fact that they weren't just higher, but we were raising them, and that was far and away the most uh, bullish aspect of of my of my dollar my strong dollar thesis. But it was never the only aspect of the strong dollar thesis. It was the predominant one, and it was the easiest one to point out and the easiest one to to look at and say, hey, this is a big advantage. But it was never the only one. Um, the other parts of the straw include the the the, the deepest uh, global markets in the world. Uh, The biggest consumer economy, we're the number one one or number two client for everybody else in the world. Uh, The dollar payment system over which capital flows around the world is controlled, literally controlled by the United States and the fact that we can kick people out of it if we don't want to. Um, the, The rule of law. Now, I know a lot of people laugh at me when I say the rule of law in the United States because some people think it doesn't exist. And I won't argue that point too much other than to say, show me another country where it exists more. Again, all this stuff is relative. Um, also, you know, the fact that we are the, uh, the global superpower, again, I don't necessarily like it. I don't really like our foreign policy, but it is what it is. And we enforced our dollar hegemony around the world. We, we, we control the sea lanes. Um, we, 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 the, the U S Navy is a big part of the U S dollar being the global reserve currency, whether you like it or not. Um, and then also the, the global denominated debt and the fact that debt until the whole system blows up debt is demand for the currency in which it is issued and i don't until the rest of the world can find another currency or another system which they're willing to leave and go to in mass um, you know that dollar debt is demand for the dollar and i think all of those things combined create much more demand for the dollar than there is for any other currency and you know this the 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 this extension of the swap lines it not only forces the United States to print, but it forces other currencies to print as well, because the only way they get dollars is by pledging their own currency. But if you have a system where both sides are printing and there's demand for one currency and not demand for the other currency, then I think that's how you get hyperinflation or high levels of inflation. But it's not in the dollar. It's in those other currencies that are have being ha- that are having to be printed in order to get a currency to in demand. And they're printing a currency that has little demand, especially outside their own borders. And so as that happens, then I think the dollar goes higher on a relative basis. Now, it might lose in real terms versus gold or some other real assets. um, But that's uh, to your your initial question, uh, interest rates are still higher in the US than the other major countries around the world. Um, So on a relative basis, they are still higher. Um, So it's still a factor it's not as big a factor as it used to be but i should also point out that it was the other reason that it was never the the interest rates were never the only factor was because i've always been of the belief that we're going to get into a situation where there will be such demand for the us dollar that the us treasury will revert to being the lowest yielding sovereign because other yields around the world will start to rise not because things are getting better and they're growing but because of counterparty risk and people will want to get paid more to own these foreign sovereigns. Um, so the idea that the U.S. has to have the highest yielding currency in order to for the milkshake to work is has never been the case. It was always the initial factor, but it was never the entire argument.
1: Makes sense. Uh, and I think uh, probably a decent way to wrap up uh, to make it actionable for viewers is to kind of yeah. say, you know, roughly speaking, uh, how is if if your thesis plays out. Uh, how do you think uh, investors can best position for it? And then I'll say, you know, from my perspective, uh, if if my view kind of plays out, like my base case, and we, you know, the dollar continues to be rage bound or eventually goes down, we have uh, the U.S. basically forced to provide liquidity. Uh, if we have that kind of that that sort of play out over next several years, so in my view, uh, you know, I'm bullish on precious metals. Uh, I'm I'm recently more bullish on Bitcoin. Uh, I'm pretty bullish on global equities uh, and. Uh, in the U.S. market, some of the more industrial equities, uh, some of the more like high-quality cyclicals. Um, and uh, I use treasuries in a somewhat counter-cyclical way. So when we have kind of more froth and risk assets, I take some chips off the table. When we have kind of a sell-off, I, I put some chips back on the table. And that's been my approach. And so I structure a portfolio in a way that kind of benefits from all currencies devaluing versus gold and versus other kind of hard assets. uh, uh but that can withstand kind of a dollar spike like we saw in March without kind of permanent capital destruction. So, how would you say that that you're positioned, uh, you know, if your thesis plays out?
0: Thank you for asking that question. The uh, because I think it's important to kind of to kind of understand this. And so, I, I actually do, do. I have two different portfolios. I have a long-only portfolio where I manage money for clients and separately managed accounts, and then I have a fund that's specifically designed to play the milkshake theory. Uh, in the in the separately managed accounts, we're largely trying to protect against. A lot of the stuff that we see coming down the pike, yeah. because we think it's it, for the most part negative for risk assets, and in the fund, we're actually trying to profit um, from from the chaos that we see coming. And so, I think as an overall, you know, pie is how I have you know allocating clients. And again, I customize everything to everybody, so all of my clients have different allocations based on their personal needs and wants and stuff. But in general, I think people will understand that you know I'm positive on U.S. dollar assets versus the rest of the world. Now, in the short term, I do think that we're going to have another rise in the dollar. I think that will initially be bad for U.S. dollar assets, or at least equities. So I think we'll get another downdraft in equities. The the rise that we've seen in equities over the last two or three months is not the milkshake. That this is not the milkshake theory, as I foresee it. In the in the heart of it, um, this is largely a liquidity driven rally by all the all the central banks mixing the milkshake. Where I think that the dollar and and the dollar has been following during this this rally of equities. As we get further into the crisis, that's when I think – so I think equities will come down you know, between now and the election, let's say, or early next year. But then as we get further into the crisis, and I think people will flock to the dollar for a number of the reasons that we've talked about, I think that will push U.S. asset prices higher. Um, And I think you should also have an allocation to gold. I've always said everybody should have an allocation to gold. We will get into a situation where – dollars and gold are maybe the two most important assets that you can own. Um, and as other currencies fall away, and you know people around the world look for safe havens, I think the dollars and gold will be the two of the most important assets they will go to. I do think that we'll get into a situation where foreigners, if they those foreigners and those foreign institutions that have capital to invest, who haven't had to sell their US dollar assets in order to fund their US dollar liabilities... Uh, we'll increasingly look at the United States as a place as a relative safe haven. Now it doesn't mean that it's great, but I think if uh, again, if I'm a Brazilian manager and I can buy Coca-Cola and it pays me three percent a year, and the Brazilian real goes down ten percent a year, and Coca-Cola goes up five percent a year, I've just made a high, you know, double-digit return or in the teens, and that, that's not too bad if I'm sitting in Sao Paulo, you know, looking at the Brazilian market. Um, I think we'll see that, uh, you know, on a relatively. Uh, a large basis. And I, and I think that will push US asset prices um, higher than people think possible over the next couple of years. Uh, I think we're going to have a full scale currency crisis. I don't think that the swap lines will solve anything other than make the problem bigger. And I think we'll eventually hit it. And I think when that happens, um, it's going to be really bad for the world. And <laughs> I, I I don't like being a negative person. Um, and I, I would actually be fine if, if I turn out to be wrong. I just, uh, I can't figure out a way out of this trap. So anyway, that's kind of how, so long story short, I would have gold, some short-term treasuries, maybe even medium-term treasuries. Um, I would, if you have equities now, I'd have them hedged. And, uh, you know, if, if we get another sell-off, then I would be a buyer, an aggressive buyer of, of U.S. equities. Makes sense. Yeah, it's great talk, I think. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think, you know, I, I think as wrapping this up, you um, I think you and I largely see a lot of the same issues. We've identified a lot of the same issues. I think it largely comes down to whether or not the central banks are able to handle the problems and if they're clever enough or smart enough or creative enough in order to come up with ways to keep it all from unraveling. And I think perhaps I'm a little bit less skeptical or more skeptical than you are. Um, But maybe that's not the right way to say it. But again, I think we've identified a lot of the same issues. It's just a matter of you know which way, and this is one of the amazing things to me is, I mean, I, I I appreciate all the the conversations we've had on Twitter. I appreciate this conversation today. It's always amazing to me that people can look at the exact same information and come to two dramatically different conclusions. But you know that's ultimately what makes a market. And yeah. uh, you know I really appreciate your willingness to come on and you know talk about this stuff and. Not everybody can disagree with a smile on their face. Some people have a hard time, but you seem to be able to do it and I hope uh, I hope uh, whenever we interact you don't uh, don't take my uh, disagreements as anything personal.
1: Yeah, same for me. I've always enjoyed our interactions and you know, I think a lot of people take things too personally and I think that's actually yeah. when people get into trouble is when they start kind of tying their ego to their investment positions rather yeah. than just constantly like looking at it objectively and saying okay, what's changing? Uh, what's happening now? Is my thesis uh, still intact? Do I have to shift it? And I think that's kind of what makes for you know kind of good investment outcomes is just always being willing to adapt as new information comes.
0: Yeah, and it's amazing how long these these big macro themes take to play out. So you know, like you said, we've talked the dollar's been going sideways for the most part for five years. Gold, yeah. you know, gold was down for six years. Now it's back up. Uh, you know, people have been talking about Japan's going to go into hyperinflation, and the yen's going to. But it's still where it was, and <laughs> it, it takes it takes a long time for this stuff yeah. to to play out. So, uh, anyway, well, it's great talking to you. I'm sure we'll be talking again, and uh, hopefully, the Real Vision listeners have enjoyed this and um, have gotten some good value out of it.
1: Yeah, thanks for the chat.
0: All right, thanks, Lynn.